This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. It's been three weeks since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, as Ukrainian President Zelensky continues to plead for aid, even virtually addressing a joint session of Congress. The situation is only worsening as Russia bombards cities, hospitals, and other civilian targets. How did we get here? And which historical parallels can shed light on Vladimir Putin's decision to invade Ukraine? On this special episode of the Commonweal Podcast, we're featuring a discussion with historian John Conley, a professor at the University of California at Berkeley and an expert on Eastern Central Europe. He's here to talk about his recent Commonweal article, Democracy versus Empire, What Makes Ukraine Different? And he speaks with Commonweal senior editor, Matthew Boudway. That's coming right up on the Commonweal Podcast. John Connolly, thank you for joining us today on the Commonwealth Podcast. Thank you for your time today. You're very welcome. I thought we'd start just by going over the argument of the article you wrote for us about the situation in Ukraine. This was an article that we published uh, sometime in the first week of the conflict. And one argument you make is to trace the parallels between the situation in Ukraine now and the situation in Czechoslovakia at the outset of World War II. Now, I know... Parallels with Hitler are often uh, treacherous and that people get themselves in trouble uh, when they don't know the history well, but you do know the history well. So I thought perhaps you could tell our listeners something about the ways in which Russia's invasion of Ukraine really does resemble Germany taking the Sudetenland in 1939. Right. Well, that does and does not because that was a, actually a peaceful enterprise because the Western powers had signed over the Sudetenland to Germany and the days preceding the occupation of Sudetenland. But what what is the two incidents have in common is that a dictator of, of a large imperial power attempted to um, take hold of territory in another country that dictator claimed belonged to his own country. And yet the West colluded in that in 1938, but has not colluded in this case, which has surprised, I think, uh, uh, Vladimir Putin. Yeah, you write that Putin, like Hitler, claims to be protecting ethnic Russian, in Putin's case, ethnic Russians in Ukraine, in Hitler's case, ethnic Germans, German speakers in, in Czechoslovakia. So maybe you could walk us through that parallel too. And then finally, perhaps you could say something about the sort of imperial chauvinism that motivates both of them. Yeah, in both cases, the, the, the respective dictator was claiming to speak in the interests of a persecuted ethnic minority in a foreign country. And if Hitler could have, he would have spoken of genocide. The war didn't exist at that time. So the basic parallel there is a pretty, is a, is a pretty strong one. And also the idea that the, the foreign land actually belongs to the homeland. That is, Germany in that period regarded Bohemia, the today's Czech Republic, as a constitutive part of, of Germany as it had existed for many centuries. That was the Holy Roman Empire. Bohemia was right in the center of that. It's a large German population. So, and as there's a belief uh, very widespread in Russia that uh, Ukraine constitutes a vital part of historic Russia going back many centuries. So there's an absolute parallel there. Also, in terms of, the, of speaking of imperialism, speaking of the way in which both dictators, I think, could rely upon support in their respective populations, even though there were no free elections in either Germany or Russia. I think both in both cases, the dictator knew that the population at large shared this view that 
the foreign territory was in fact a, an integral part of, of the home territory. So, and so there's this problem of not just imperialism of the leader, but a way in which the leader could base his power and no leader can operate with, without some kind of popular support um, upon widespread assumptions in, in, in the two populations. So that, that I think is very similar and, and, and a great problem. And the case of Germany, as we know, that then led to World War II and the complete devastation of much of Europe as well as Germany. And then in a very long learning process in the German population, that imperialism is an evil and is not a proper method or goal of politics. Russia has never had that lesson. Russia learned the opposite from World War II and in fact expanded its empire after World War II in, in, in claims of supposed security, vital security interests of, of, of itself as the Soviet Union. I wonder if you could say something about the way Putin has uh, presented this conflict as a kind of civilizational conflict, not simply patriarch Kirill, the patriarch of Moscow, has described it as being a struggle not about that's not physical, but of metaphysical significance. We are talking about something different and much more important than politics. We are talking about human salvation. It's been reported that Putin said sometime in the last few years in a public statement, I think it was a speech, that um, there may indeed be a nuclear conflict between Russia and the West. But if there is, uh, Russians shouldn't worry because they'll go to heaven and the, the Westerners will rot. What do you make of this kind of this kind of rhetoric? You present the conflict as being a conflict between liberal democracy because Ukraine is is a country that actually ha has now about three decades of experience with liberal democracy and Russia's authoritarianism. But what do you make of, of the way the Kremlin has presented what's at stake in this conflict? Not simply a question of NATO's expansion eastward, but something seemingly larger than that. Yeah, it's inter interesting uh, I mean, because we, we used to think of, of, of Russia in particular as being a very secular society, right? And I mean, certainly during and before the collapse of communism with some decades long uh, war on, on, on churches, on organized religion and tremendous dis destruction of the Orthodox Church. And here we have a situation where the successor regime to the Soviet Union um, is indeed claiming to stake a moral ground on, on, re on religious, on a religious basis. And I've even heard the talk of of the ex KGB officer himself turning more and more to religion in later years. I I think the the rhetoric is evidently not acceptable from um, any from either a Christian or a secular point of view. What, what I'm curious about is is whether this is something that that really is accepted in the Russian population. I think there is obviously among the the older population perhaps it it, it seems compelling and convincing. But my sense is that among younger Russians, this seems like what it is, which is, is you know, a complete bunk and fabrication. So I, and it's obviously, as you suggest, it's not a, a rhetoric that, that we can engage. I think that Francis, Pope Francis has, has, has tried to step very gingerly around this controversy or this difference of opinions, the severe difference of opinions with um, uh, the patriarch in Moscow. I think the, the issue really, regardless of what Putin may or may not believe religiously, it, it's about the attempt to destroy a democracy. And it's a long-term agenda of the Russian government to make sure that a, a truly independent Ukrainian state does not emerge. And this was true in 1918, 1919. It was true at later periods. It was true also regarding Ukrainian culture, which is, has been severely uh, suppressed over many generations. And it's True after 1991, even the democratic regimes of the 1990s didn't, in Russia, did not, or semi-democratic regimes didn't accept 
the existence of an independent Ukraine. So I think that's what this is about. This is not about civilization. This is about the basic right of a people to determine its fate, self-government, uh, democracy, right? I would really insist that that's the issue. And the patriarch, I hope that people aren't listening to him. Usually, I guess we in Commonweal hope that people do listen to religious authorities, but this is one case where the religious authority is playing a, a, a very negative role, in my view. Do you think this will have a long-term effect on relations within orthodoxy among the patriarchs, and especially the relationship of uh, the Russian patriarch to other patriarchs in, in, the, in the Slavic world? Yeah, I, I can't speak to the relation of other patriarchs, but I, I think what, what's pretty clear is that Orthodox believers in Ukraine, those, because there, there are some, some who, who are more attuned to, 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 to Moscow, I think that this will firm the hold of the local Orthodox Ukrainian authorities. I'm not by any means an expert on orth, Orthodoxy in that regard, but I, I can't imagine that the witness of, of slaughter of, of, of innocent civilians um, and and the patriarch saying this is God's will. I can't imagine that is going to have any other effect than to alienate Orthodox believers in Ukraine and perhaps elsewhere as well. So I think the long-term effect for legitimacy of, of uh, Russian Orthodoxy, but also the the Russian state among those who might have been attracted to, to you know Russian statehood and culture in Ukraine, all of that is going to decline. You write near the end of your Commonwealth article that the far right, the friends of Trump and Putin who respect neither rule of law nor free elections, the Salvinis, Le Pens, Orbans, and Tucker Carlson's issue weak statements of displeasure. Their friend in Moscow has betrayed their cause by overreaching, embarrassed them with his petulance, and perhaps stopped them in their tracks. What do you think the long-term effect of this war will be on uh, larger geopolitical trends in the West? Do you think that this will be a serious setback for nationalists in the West, ethno-nationalists and members of the sort of new right who were lining up behind Putin before this conflict and are now quickly trying to cover their, their tracks. Do you think this will have a long-term effect on their political prospects or do you think they'll, be, they'll succeed in detaching their, their own uh, agenda from his? Yeah, I, I'm not good at predictions. I was, for example, in East Germany the entire summer before the wall fell and I thought the place would last <laughs> for decades. So I'm not very good at predictions. But I, I, I do think that it's become increasingly difficult for people to argue that there's somehow an alternative to liberal democracy as we understand it about rule of law and, 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 and freedom of elections and civil liberties, division of powers, these old liberal ideas that we have that have been contested by people like Donald Trump, uh, but also Viktor Orban and Kaczynski in Poland. I think with, within Europe, it's pretty clear that even now there's a sense in Poland, for example, in the, in the peace group that, that that if they don't actually abide by liberal norms, that that posture may, may endanger them and their own uh, and, and Polish sovereignty, right? So that NATO is coming together and NATO states, European Union states are coming together around this rhetoric of liberal democracy, which um, I think people are gratified by. but. And I think it will have holding power because we, we can't anticipate an end to the crisis. Uh, but one, you know, one place to look uh, for evidence of this will be the upcoming Hungarian elections and you know, whether or not Viktor Orban can weather this, this crisis because clearly he's very closely associated with Vladimir Putin. So, yeah, I, I would just say hopefully that, yes, I, I think that this should have a solidifying effect, bringing forces throughout Europe to closer to the center of the political spectrum and isolating uh, the right, which which has you know been been very unwilling to um, abide by liberal values over the last ten or fifteen years, 
So yeah, that, that may indeed be a fringe benefit of this terrible time is a recoalescence of uh, the democratic center in Western democracies. It's more than, well, 10 days, I think, since uh, your article appeared on our website, certainly more than a week, and a lot has happened in that time on the ground in Ukraine. I think people everywhere are beginning to lose hope that there's a diplomatic solution to this because so much damage has been done by the Russians pulverizing cities. They're now starting to make incursions in Kiev itself. How can the United States and Europe adequately convey our abhorrence at what Putin has done, but also at the same time provide an off-ramp for Russia so that they have an option to stop this. That seems increasingly unlikely. And yet I don't know what else the United States can do if it doesn't have some kind of diplomatic program in mind. So what would diplomacy look like in this case? Is there anything that can be done hoping for a, a palace coup in Moscow or a military defeat on the ground in Ukraine? Well, the best thing that I've read in recent days this takes us back to Czechoslovakia, is that we not behave the way the Western powers did in 1938 toward Czechoslovakia. That is that we not make some kind of deal with, with Russia over the heads of Ukraine and its legitimate representatives, right? So that, that would be the you know basic gold standard. And beyond that, if it turns out that the Ukrainian side is, is, is willing to engage in some kind of, let us say, compromise, and there's been talk of this, for example, willingness to declare kind of neutrality. That's something that we should support. Doesn't seem that, as far as I can tell from negotiations in recent days, that if it's been offered has, has not caused the Russian side to to relent. So I'm extremely skeptical about diplomacy. I think everybody I've listened to is also skeptical at this moment, although it has to continue and should continue. I think the, the main thing that I, I think I, I would say in, in regard to the long term, and this is looking at Eastern, East Central Europe over the last hundred years, is that we do what we can to stand by those who want to fight for their freedom. Uh, in Ukraine, just as we enjoy freedom here, Ukrainians should be able to enjoy freedom and security in their own home. And if they are willing to bear sacrifice and fight for that, we should we should stand by them and and indeed not be tempted to make some kind of a compromise over their heads the way that Western leaders in 1938, but also after 1945, essentially signaling to Russia that we would recognize their sphere of influence in Eastern Europe. I think it's a great tragedy historically that happened. Um, but yeah, I can't say much. I don't see an off, a quote unquote, off ramp because it usually involves our accepting their narrative about what's happening. And their narrative is so distant from reality. The idea that Ukraine is under fascist rule is something that we, we, we simply can't entertain, right? And if that's the reality within which Russia is expecting us to make compromises, it's, I just don't see how that's going to work. What does standing by Ukraine consist of at this moment, practically speaking? What more could the United States and other NATO countries be doing for Ukraine that doesn't risk escalation into uh, World War III or even a, a nuclear confrontation between Russia and the United States? Yeah, well, you, Ukraine has been requesting desperately that there be a, a no-fly zone over, over Ukraine, and that's considered, I, I've heard experts speak about this, it's considered not to be a possibility because it would involve a direct confrontation with Russian warplanes. But it struck me that uh, a week or so ago, when there was this discussion of delivery of fighter jets to, to Ukraine, I mean, this all occurred openly in, 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 in public, and I don't understand why that, that was the case. It seems to me that there must have been a possibility of aiding Ukraine in that regard in a more subtle manner. I'm guessing, I, I have respect actually for the current U.S. policy, I'm guessing that the U.S. is aiding Ukraine in ways that we're not aware effectively through various kinds of military, non-military means. I, I, I would say that should by all means continue.
on a different note, there should ideally be presence of, of, of Western leaders on Ukrainian territory showing solidarity with Ukraine. And so we read this morning that the leaders of Poland, I'm not sure if it's presence of prime ministers of Poland, uh, Czech Republic and Slovakia are actually going to keep to Kiev. I think that's a great thing that that will demonstrate that we care. I recall that during the post-war period, the early Cold War, there was a moment when the U.S. actually managed to. So we spoke about Germany and Russia um, populations, the moment at which it is said the German population after the war sided with, with liberal democracy was the moment at which it witnessed that the U.S. was willing to sacrifice its own pilots in the Berlin airlift for the sake of the freedom of West Berlin. This is 1948-49. We had tried a lot of other means before that point, re-education. Ukraine doesn't need that. I mean, Ukraine is a democratic country. That's the point that I make in my article. It's very imperfect. There's you know corruption and cronyism and all these things. We don't need to, we don't need to make it democratic, right? It is democratic, um, but anything we can do in terms of providing in subtle ways, military aid, humanitarian relief, but also just a physical presence of our leaders on their territory. If, you know, if Slovakia can do this, why, why not, you know, why not the U.S.? I, I think it's a, a fantastic gesture on their part, just that, that we stand with Ukraine without risking World War III. It seems to me that there's more we can do in that regard. It's beginning to look to a lot of people as if nothing short of regime change in, in Russia would actually normalize relations uh, between Russia and the West. Because, as you say, uh, Putin himself is intransigent and delusional. But also, it seemed like there was, in the first few days of the war, it seemed like even then there was a possibility of returning to the groundwork that had been established, the Treaty of Minsk. And uh, you heard the Ukrainian President Zelensky talking about the possibility of, of Ukrainian neutrality. but And I, I suppose, in theory, those terms are still subject to negotiation, but it seems increasingly difficult to imagine having the status quo ante of, of Russian-American or Russian-NATO relations with Putin still in power. I, I agree. I think he's staked his reputation, his position upon this act, and he's associated with it and all, all the disasters that, that has followed from it. And he has little to lose personally from continuing his course of action. He's, he's already, in, in a sense, he's crossed that bridge, right? He's going into that new terrain. So and people are saying something needs to be offered so that he can save face toward the Russian population. I, I think that the, he, he speaks in terms of, of recreating this, this greater Russian um, space. I, I think short of attaining that, any, anything else will, will seem like a failure. So again, I, this is always the difficulty in, in, in peace peacemaking, right? Then what, what, what one tries to understand the other's position and make the other feel uh, or, or take away any basis of, of, of insecurity and fear on the part of the other. But when the other thinks in the way that it does about its security and its security necessarily involving control of Ukraine, I, I don't I don't see much room for compromises, especially since Ukraine has indicated that it, it, it wants what we have, basically, right? It wants free existence, uh, normal free existence where people can speak without fear. And people forget, I mean, you, people in you know, Ukraine, Georgia, Armenia, Poland, Baltic states, they lived for many decades under this, this terrible regime of you know, not, not, not being secure in what, what, what you said, were read or wrote, even thought, were religious practice, political speech, all of that was suppressed for decades. And when people emerge from that, it seems we're seeing that they don't want to go back to it. And that's what, you know, today's Russia is a place of fear. 
you know, it's a place of unfreedom. And so there, you know, it's just evident rejection on the part of, of Ukrainian people. So, and it, and it's something w- without which Putin evidently feels extremely insecure, right? In other words, without control of Ukraine, Russia is in, in his mind, an insecure place. It's worded in a very different way, right? It's worded in terms of, of, of Russia's history, Russia's interests, Russia's civilization, as you say. And the church is there is complicit in this rhetoric. Ultimately, it, it, it's about this neighboring state going its own way. It's not, you know, Russia doesn't recognize that possibility. And it, it's, as far as I know, it's very well established in the Russian population, right? This is not just his idea. Don Connolly, thank you for joining us. Okay, well, thank you. And yeah, it's been a pleasure. John Connolly's article is Democracy versus Empire. What makes Ukraine different? and it's available now on the Commonweal website. Look for continued coverage of Ukraine on our website and in upcoming issues. This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.